Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the Muslim doctrine of martyrdom and its relationship to jihad. Today, Muslim martyrdom is most often associated with the modern phenomenon of suicide bombing. But definitions about martyrdom and its relationship to jihad are complex and deeply contested. They're the subject of intense scrutiny and debate among Muslim scholars, interpreters of the Quran and Islamic law for the past 14 centuries. So in this episode, we'll examine the development of the Islamic doctrine of martyrdom from its surprising absence in the Quran through its appearance in the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, the Hadith, and the different ways in which medieval and then modern religious leaders have understood martyrdom and defined it, not least in its militant form. I'll be joined by Asma Afsaruddin. She is Herman B. Wells, Endowed Professor of Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures at the University of Indiana in Bloomington, and author of many books, including most recently, Jihad, What Everyone Needs to Know. Hello, Asma. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you for accepting the invitation. And today we're going to be talking about martyrdom, which we can broadly and generally find, at least to begin with, as death in the cause of faith. And the English word, and indeed in the, the, the Christian tradition, martyrdom comes from the, the Greek term meaning to witness. And indeed, in the Arabic and Islamic tradition, too, as we'll explore more fully the different and changing meanings of the Arabic term shahada, also can be translated, at least simply to begin with, as to witness as well, the act of witnessing. But as we'll see, crucially, martyrdom, witnessing, isn't and certainly hasn't always been related to jihad, to the, well, let's say, yeah, religiously uh, motivated and legitimized warfare. So today we'll be exploring the various and changing and indeed competing ideas about martyrdom over the course of Muslim history from the Quranic revelation through to more recent times. So to start us off, I suppose for, for some listeners, perhaps one of the most startling things about your research, Asma, is that the Quran has little if anything, to say about martyrs and martyrdom. So how is martyrdom, if at all, presented in the Quran, and then more particularly in the Hadith, the say, the traditions of the, the sayings and, uh, and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad? Yes. So um, you're absolutely right that um, the Quran actually says very little about martyrs and martyrdom, and it does not actually have a specific concept or term to indicate martyrs 
and to indicate martyrdom, particularly in the military sense. In the general literature, though, we find that the term shahid, which does occur in the Quran, is used to refer to a military martyr. Interestingly enough, this term shahid does not occur in the Quran in this, same, in this sense. Shahid and the related term shahid, both from the same Arabic root, refer in the Quran to a legal or eyewitness, and it is used for both God and humans in a number of Quranic verses. The Quran rather uses other expressions or phrases to refer to the martyr. The most frequent one is man qutila fi sabilillah in Arabic, or the variant alladhina qutilu fi sabilillah, which means those who are slain in the path of God. That's a literal translation of this phrase. The phrase does not explicitly refer to the military martyr, although the Quranic context for some of these verses containing this phrase sometimes suggested. It is only in the extra Quranic literature, especially hadith, which you just explained as referring to the statements of the Prophet Muhammad that he made on his own cognizance, that is, not as part of the divine revelation that we refer to as the Quran, which as Muslims believe came entirely from God. So it is only in the extra Quranic literature, including hadith and including Quran commentaries, legal and certain types of literary edifying works that teach people how to become better human beings, that the term shahid explicitly acquires the meaning of one who bears witness for the faith by laying down his or her own life. External, particularly Syriac Christian influence may be suspected in this evolution in the term's meaning. Muslims, after all, began to encounter Syriac-speaking Christians starting in the late 7th century, and we can assume a probable influence of the cognate Syriac word from martyr witness, Sahido, on the Arabic shahid. Now in the Hadith literature, we actually find many reports that document various meanings that are ascribed to the term Shahid. So I'm gonna start with a very early Hadith collection called the Musannaf. Musannaf in Arabic simply means something that is arranged according to topics. So this early Hadith collection called Musannaf was compiled by a well-known scholar of Hadith from the late eighth century of the common era by the name of Abdul Razak, he died in 827. And this work contains many reports that preserve a broad range of meanings for the term Shahid. In one such report recorded by Abdul Razak, the Shahid is described as one who dies in bed without sin and therefore entitled to enter heaven. Another report in this collection states, every believer is a witness, and the term used is shahid. Both these early reports use the term shahid then in its basic Quranic meaning of witness, referring to righteous believers who have borne witness to the truth of their religion throughout their lives through their faith and conduct. It is interesting that several reports recorded in the Musannaf appear to challenge those who would emphasize that martyrdom refers primarily to dying on the battlefield. In one such report, Muhammad is quoted as saying, now I'm quoting, 
The one who dies of natural causes in the path of God is a martyr. Another, reported, another report also recorded in the Musannaf declares that there are four kinds of martyrdom. One kind is earned in dying from the plague, another from childbirth, another from drowning at sea, and a fourth from a stomach ailment. Significantly, there is no mention of martyrdom being earned on account of dying on the battlefield in this early report. Another important collection of hadiths compiled by the famous jurist Malik ibn Anas contains similar reports. One hadith recorded in this collection is quite detailed in defining who a shaheed is. A shaheed is someone who dies as a victim of an epidemic or dies from drowning or dries from pleurisy or from diarrhea. One who dies by being burned in fire is also a martyr. One who dies by being crushed by a falling dilapidated wall is a martyr. The woman who dies giving birth is a martyr, as well as someone who dies fighting on the battlefield. Reports such as these found in early Hadith works clearly demonstrate that martyrdom was understood very broadly in the early centuries of Islam before the term was appropriated in the later period to refer more narrowly to the military martyr. Now this becomes evident when we move on to uh, later hadith collections. For example, Al-Bukhari's famed hadith collection known as Sahih, Sahih is an Arabic word meaning sound or authentic. So we can translate the title of his uh, hadith collection as the sound collection. It was compiled roughly in the last half of the ninth century. So almost a century after Abdul Razak's compilation that I just referred to. Al-Bukhari who died in 870 records more hadiths that contain enthusiastic praise of the military jihad and vivid description of the rewards waiting for the military martyr in the afterlife. References to non-combative martyrdom and its virtues occur but are noticeably fewer in al-Bukhari's work. In one such hadith, Muhammad declares martyrs to be of five kinds, those who die from the plague, from stomach ailments, from drowning, from being crushed to death, and by suffering martyrdom in the path of God. So we can see that there is an emerging repertoire of uh, phrases um, and explanations of who exactly um, a martyr is. In another report that al-Bukhari includes in his Hadith collection, the Prophet states that the plague is a source of martyrdom for every Muslim. Again, a, uh, a report that we found recorded in Abdul Azad's earlier collection. By the way, this is a Hadith that uh, many Muslims took note of during the pandemic of the last three years. Other Hadiths in al-Bukhari's collection, however, single out military martyrdom as worthy of special rewards in the hereafter. One Hadith states that there is a house of martyrs, which is the best and most excellent of dwelling places in the hereafter. Another report says that whoever is wounded in the path of God will be resurrected on the day of judgment with the color of blood and breath of musk, which is very high praise for the military martyr. About a decade or two later, when we get to the Hadith collection of another well-known scholar, At-Tirmidhi, and Tirmidhi died in um, 892 of the Common Era, late ninth century. 
There are more reports to be found that praise the military martyr effusively. These do not occur in al-Bukhari's highly esteemed hadith collection. In al-Tirmidhi's collection, one such hadith uh, has the second caliph, Omar ibn al-Khattab, and I'll come back to the caliphs, by the way, a little bit later, has him stating that he had heard Muhammad enumerate four types of martyrs. First, a believing man of strong faith who meets the enemy with resolute and honest intent and is slain. He is the best kind. Second, a believing man of strong faith who on encountering the enemy falters due to a twinge of cowardice and is slain. He is of the second rank. Third, a believing man who mixes good deeds with bad deeds, but meets the enemy with honest intent and is slain, he's of the third rank. And fourth, a believing man who sins against himself, but meets the enemy with resolute intent and is slain, he's of the fourth rank. What is noteworthy about this hadith related by Omar is that it has replaced the five to seven categories of non-military martyrs that are listed in the earlier hadith works of Abdul Razak and Malik ibn Anas. And the content of this report signals to us a dramatic transformation in the status accorded to the military martyr in Muslim discourses by the late third or ninth century. And this becomes very evident in the exaggerated praise for the military martyr at the expense of the non-military one that we see in this hadith. Really fascinating, Asma, and it's so so important how you've lined out for us here the not just the the, the changing, the developing uh, uh, different ideas, interpretations, and different sort of uh, emphases on on the meaning of, of of martyrdom on shahada, but that in the Quran this term shahada or its cognate term the the shaheed what would later be often seen as, as the, the martyr, literally the witness, is really only using the Quran in the sense of a legal witness, someone who saw something happening to be able to report in legal terms. I saw this and that person did X or Y. It's not uh, uh, in the sense of a martyr, still less of a, a military martyr. And that this, over the, the following centuries and through these different Hadith collections then, different collections of the Prophet's words, there were not only a a range of types of martyrdom, but they weren't mainly military. And that sort of growing gradual emphasis on the on the military martyr really happens over a period, as, as you've lined out for us, really appeared around three centuries, and indeed another thousand years, as we'll now sort of, uh, or you'll now map out for us after that. And I think another kind of key point that you, you've made, certainly in your writings, and, and I think there implicitly, is that... Um, the earlier notions of martyr, and indeed many of the subsequent ones too, with this emphasis on them becoming a martyr is passive. You don't deliberately go out and seek out to be a martyr. That's something that happens to you rather than you make happen, still less make happen through military uh, uh, decisions that, that, that one might make. So we've gone up then to around the ninth century, haven't we, with these Hadith collections. But of course, when we talk about Islamic tradition, we mean not just the, the Quran and the Hadith, we mean particularly the traditions of interpretation, elaboration, all the other different genres and all the other different kind of figures, not just the, the prophet and the Hadith collectors. 
not least the figures of the the ulama, the scholars or or the clerics of uh, who interpret in many ways, kind of create Islamic tradition for the following centuries. So let's turn then to this next more formative period of Islamic history from the ninth century and this other set of important texts, which is to say the the interpretive and legal writings of these scholars and jurists that we call the ulama, the learned. So how did ideas about martyrdom then develop through the following medieval centuries after where you left us, after, let's say, the year 850 or some such in the, the common era? So, um, great question. And I'm going to try to summarize some very dramatic developments that did occur after the ninth century or ninth century onwards. So as the meanings of jihad became more militarized over time, so did notions of martyrdom. And we see this process starting already in the Umayyad period that lasted from 661 to 750 of the Common Era. The Umayyads are those who came to power after Ali ibn Abi Talib, the last of the four rightly guided caliphs, and I will come back to this term a little bit later, after Ali was killed in 661. Under the Umayyads and continuing through the time of the Abbasids, and the Abbasids are the rulers who overthrew the Umayyads in 750 of the Common Era and established their dynasty in Baghdad shortly thereafter. Under both of these dynasties, the military martyr grew in importance. This development occurred despite the fact that the Quran does not assign a higher status to the pious individual slain on the battlefield over a pious individual who dies of natural causes. This is very evident when we look at a critical verse in the Quran that makes no distinction between these two categories, categories of people. This verse, Quran 22:58, chapter 22, verse 58, states, those who emigrated in the path of God and then were slain or died, God will provide handsome provisions for them. Indeed, God is the best of providers, end of quote. When we look at the commentary literature, we find that the exegetes are pretty much in agreement that the verse refers specifically to the Meccan emigrants called Muhajirun in Arabic. These are the emigrants who uh, left for uh, Medina and emigrated from Mecca when the situation became quite dire for them uh, because of the persecution of the, the um, pagan Meccan Arabs. And the Hijra or the official emigration to Medina from Mecca took place in 622. Um, so, the exegetes have pretty much agreed upon the fact that this is a specific reference to the Meccan emigrants, and they are promised a handsome reward in the next world, but this is regardless of how they died. The verse is therefore pointing to the greater status of the emigrants in general compared to other early Muslims on account of the hardships that they had suffered for the sake of Islam. It is not assigned to the emigrant martyred on the battlefield, a higher status than the emigrant who dies naturally. The larger implication of this verse is that the believer who is slain on the battlefield and the believer who dies peacefully in his or her bed are completely morally equivalent. 
the critical yardstick being the sincerity of their faith and not the manner of their dying. In his commentary on Quran 2258, the 13th century Andalusian scholar and jurist Al-Qurtubi, and he died uh, in 1273 of the Common Era, acknowledges that this verse establishes the complete equality in status between the emigrant slain on the battlefield and the emigrant who dies in a, his or her bed. Nevertheless, he notes that some legal scholars went on to assert that the believer who is slain on the battlefield is morally more excellent than the believer who dies of natural causes. As a result, Islamic law as interpreted and applied by the jurists came to reflect this point of view. However, Al-Qurtubi points out, their view clearly contradicts not only Quran 2258, but also a number of hadiths which assert the absolute moral equivalence of these two groups of people. In one such hadith, the well-known companion Anas ibn Malik, a companion was one who was a close associate of Muhammad, knew him personally and enjoyed a, a close relationship with him. So Anas ibn Malik quotes the prophet as saying in this hadith, quote, the one who is slain in the path of God and the one who dies of natural causes in the path of God are the equal of one another in regard to the blessings and reward that they reap. This discussion of Quran 2258 by the commentators is significant because it underscores the contested definitions of martyrdom through time and the higher religious status that was assigned to the military martyr in the later period, especially in legal circles. We can therefore conclude that the cult of military martyrdom that does become evident in certain kinds of late post-Quranic literature developed not because of the Quran, but in spite of it. Such a development was after all an outright contradiction to Quran 20 to 58, which contains a transparent warning against the very construction of such a cult. Al-Qurtubi's comments make clear that jurists did not always rely on scripture to make their legal decisions, especially on the topic of warfare. The Quran and the Sunnah, and the Sunnah refers to the customs and practices of the Prophet and also includes the Hadith, the statements of Muhammad. So, Al-Qurtubi's comments makes clear to us that the jurists did not always rely on the Quran and the Sunnah, and they were not the only sources for their legal decision-making. Local customary practices and practical worldly considerations frequently played an influential role in this process. In the context of external relations with non-Muslim polities, jurists were mainly concerned with maximizing the welfare of the Muslim community and protecting its interests against those of hostile foreign entities. In pursuit of such objectives, jurists sometimes devised legal strategies that allowed them to qualify or occasionally even bypass clear Quranic injunctions and Muhammad's established practices on issues of war and peace. Such developments must be understood within the specific historical and political circumstances in which they took shape. 
Thus we see that despite the fact that the Quran and several hadiths do not consider death on the battlefield to be more meritorious than dying of natural causes, a number of jurists progressively began to confer a higher status on the military martyr. This is indicated by the fact that special funerary practices developed for the military martyr over time to indicate their special status. Unlike normal burials, the jurors determined that the body of the martyr is not to be washed. If the martyr was wounded on the battlefield and died later in his home, then his body is to be washed. Martyrs are to be buried in the clothes that they fought in, but their weapons are to be removed. Most jurists were of the opinion that there was no need to say the funeral prayers over the martyr's body. The assumption being that all his sins had been forgiven and that he would ascend to heaven right away. Some jurists record that there were differences of legal opinion concer concerning the funerary practices that would apply to different types of martyrs. For example, one slain by brigands versus the one, one slain by non-Muslims or one who had perished on land versus one who was killed at sea. This kind of this attention to various details indicates how seriously jurists took the matter of uh, the status of the military martyr and how to show due respect for the fallen warrior. Well, that's very useful, Asma, because you've given us a sense that these different the different criteria of interpretation, the different categories, the the sort of the ways in which the the ulama, the jurists, the scholars were. Were, were thinking and kind of classifying their, their, their evidence, the, the Quran, but as you pointed out, the, the hadith that, that perhaps usefully or for the, in the context and the concerns, as you said, of, of the jurists, uh, made, made sort of statements or possibilities of interpretation and versions of martyrdom that were in spite of the, they seem to contradict the, 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 the statements of the Quran. So there were clearly then quite different positions emerging about martyrdom then between, as we said, between, let's say, after the, the ninth century of the, of the common era then, as the, the medieval centuries develop, and indeed these changing contexts then, the changing in the century, I'd say the geopolitical context then of, uh, of, uh, of Muslim communities and their surrounding non-Muslim communities and states then. So these were different ideas then about what, activities define someone as a martyr. So can you now perhaps further sketch out some of these different definitions, positions and debates, perhaps not least over the, the subsequent centuries then, kind of of the later medieval period and thereafter? Okay. Um, so there's one particular literary genre that I want to refer to uh, that is extremely useful for us to trace these changing meanings um, assigned to the term shahid and shahid uh, and the meanings of uh, martyrdom and who constitutes or who is the best kind of martyr. And so this particular literary genre is termed in Arabic fada'ilul jihad, which can be translated into English as the excellences or merits of jihad, in this case, referring to the military jihad. Now, many of the reports contained in these works list bountiful rewards for the military martyr in the hereafter and contain clear exhortations to the faithful 
to take part in military campaigns, particularly under the Umayyads. So we still have to go back to the Umayyad period to try and trace the genesis of the genre and how these reports continue to be marshaled through time in order to exhort people to join the various caliphal armies. Now, if we scrutinize the chains of transmission of a number of these fada'ilul jihad or excellences of jihad reports, we find that a large number of the narrators of these reports were from Syria and were regarded in general as highly unreliable transmitters by the Hadith scholars. So the chains of transmissions of Hadith uh, refer to what in Arabic is called isnad. They, they list the names of the transmitters, the various transmitters who had heard this Hadith related to them from previous transmitters. So the, a good chain of transmission must go all the way back to the Prophet, obviously. A, a, a hadith has to be attributed to Muhammad. Um, then there should be an unbroken chain of transmission so that the next person in the chain of transmission must be the companion. And then the second generation must be the third generation and so forth until we arrive at the time when the orally transmitted report was actually put down in writing. So the chain of transmission, the Isnad of Hadith is extremely uh, important for determining the reliability of Hadith. So fortunately for us, most of the time, these Hadiths have been recorded with the chains. And so we can go back and look at the names of the transmitters. Now, the Syrian background of many of these transmitters is highly important because they indicate to us that Syrian supporters of the Umayyad dynasty which was based in Syria with their capital in Damascus, circulated reports praising the virtues of fighting in the Umayyad armies and praising the merits of the military martyr in a very hyperbolic manner. There were many who were opposed to the Umayyads since the Umayyads were not regarded as legitimate rulers. The Umayyads are greatly blamed in the sources for having instituted dynastic rule Whereas the four legitimate rulers before them, and their names are Abu Bakr, Omar, Osman, and Ali, had ruled on the basis of a principle known in Arabic as shura, which we can translate into English as consultation. Now, in the early period, the Muslim community therefore had a role in the selection of the rulers. And these four men, who were not related to one another, were known for their personal piety and close association with Muhammad. As a result, they're idealized as the rightly guided caliphs. A caliph, by the way, refers to the Muslim ruler after the death of the prophet. In contrast, the Umayyads, in contrast to the rightly guided caliphs, the Umayyads were regarded at best as half-hearted, lukewarm Muslims, if not downright impious, whose prominent members had bitterly opposed and persecuted Muhammad and his followers and had fought against them. The opponents of the Umayyads were based mainly in the Hejaz. The Hejaz refers to the region in what is today Saudi Arabia that includes Mecca and Medina. Now these opponents of the Umayyads constituted a pietistic contingent that was clearly dismayed by the military campaigns of the Umayyads after they came to power and their promotion of offensive military campaigns, particularly against the Byzantines. Since many of the members of the Umayyad clan had embraced Islam 
pretty much at the last minute, that is to say on the day that Mecca surrendered to the Prophet in 630 of the Common Era, they did not have the kind of moral standing that the rightly guided caliphs did. And so to compensate for this lack of moral standing, the Umayyads adopted jihad as ostensibly religious warfare as a way of establishing their Islamic credentials with the general population. Most pious Muslims saw through this ruse and refused to buy into this kind of ideological myth-making. Thus, we have the pious Meccan scholar by the name of Atta ibn Abi Rabah. He died in 733. Opposed the Umayyads and is on record for having rejected the notion of offensive military jihad and stressing instead that the military jihad could only be defensive. Importantly, Atta also stated that the military jihad was obligatory only during the lifetime of Muhammad against the violent pagan Meccans, but that it had lapsed as a duty after the death of the prophet. And this is actually in reference to Quran 2, 216, or I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 216, which talks about jihad as an obligatory duty, but in the opinion of early scholars like Atta and others, um, this duty was not uh, applicable to subsequent generations. So as a pushback against the worldly Umayyads and then the Abbasids after them, pietistic Muslims in general place greater emphasis on sabr as the non-combative and enduring dimension of jihad. In the Quran, there are two primary dimensions of jihad, and I do discuss this in great detail in my books. Sabr, which I translate as pious forbearance, is the unconditional and continuous aspect of jihad prominent in both the Meccan and Medinan chapters of the Quran. And the second dimension is qital, which refers to fighting, was introduced only during the Medinan period of Muhammad's prophetic career, that is to say after the emigration to Medina in 622, and represents the conditional and temporary aspect of jihad. According to these pious Muslims, the best form of martyrdom then was achieved by the patient individual who bore with fortitude life's trials and tribulations till the end of his or her life. It's a much more broader uh, understanding of what martyrdom consists of. Now, this was a view they shared with Sufis, the mystics of Islam, who also emphasized the spiritual jihad, the spiritual struggle inherent in the practice of sabr, which they named the greater jihad. The Shia, especially the Tolra Shia, also largely subscribed to this view. The Shia adopted political quietism after 874, when their last imam or religious leader is said to have gone into occultation or hiding. As part of this quietism, they emphasized that those who had given their allegiance to the Shia imams and died in this state are to be considered martyrs. Now the scholars in general, um, and uh, Niall, you helpfully gave us the Arabic term for it, the olama, also emphasized that one of the best forms of jihad was making the effort to acquire knowledge 
Anyone who died while traveling in the pursuit of knowledge was therefore a martyr of the highest order. And I think that is a very congenial position for those of us who are in the academy. Scholars also emphasize what they call the jihad of the tongue or a discursive form of jihad. This kind of jihad may be carried out, for example, by presenting strong arguments in favor of what is true and, and undermining what is false through um, in a rational presentation of facts and so forth. And scholars often tended to cite the hadith in which the prophet says that one of the best forms of jihad was speaking the truth before a tyrant. Now, this excellences of jihad literature really takes off during the later Mamluk period, uh, a period which started in 1250 and ended in 1453. So this is the later medieval period. And these treatises urge the faithful to engage in military combat and start listing exaggerated merits and, and rewards that will uh, accrue to the fallen warrior in the next world. And the reason for this can be contextually explained by the fact that the Muslim world during the Mamluk period came under attack by the Crusaders and then by the Mongols. So the famous jurist, Ibn Kathir, who died in 1373, if we look at his excellences of jihad treatise, we find that he stresses the extraordinary merits of taking part in naval warfare. And he declared that to be the best form of military activity. Now, this view can be explained by the fact that the crusaders of Ibn Kathir's time were launching attacks on the vulnerable shores of Syria and Egypt. And so you can imagine why Ibn Kathir would be quite concerned about promoting the merits of fighting um, on, on sea in, uh, on, in ships and trying to ward off the attacks by the Crusaders. Now, reports from these works are being selectively and decontextually used to great effect by today's militants to create the impression that, um, you know, these are absolute and hard and fast positions rather than, you know, being contextually determined and um, you know, justified by the, the socio-political circumstances in which these jurists and scholars found themselves to be in. So you've given us, yeah, I mean, finishing off there at that key point, uh, particularly uh, Asma, you've given us this important picture of, of textual and contextual factors and moreover how they're intermingling and shaping one another. I mean, there's this new textual genre that emerges, as you described, the Fadayl al-Jihad, the, the merits or the excellences of jihad. And now, and in this new context of Umayyad Syria, but particularly of Mamluk Syria and Egypt, in the time when, yeah, we have the, the couple of centuries of crusades and also this century and a half, pretty much, of, of uh, yeah, or century of... of of Mongol conquest of much of the Islamic world, the Eastern Islamic world, that actually creates for the first time in 600 years, incredibly long time, Muslims being ruled over in in, in very large numbers, the, the, the key core Muslim communities being ruled over by non-Muslims. And it's actually the 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 Mamluks who actually managed to hold off the uh, the the uh, uh, the Mongol invaders at, at Ain Jalut, isn't it? This famous battle, as you know well, in, in Syria. So, yeah, we've got this interplay of textual and contextual factors through the, the medieval period. 
But now let's turn, as you've written about, uh, in equal measure from the medieval to, to the modern era and when definitions of martyrdom both did and didn't change, when we have truly radical changes in definitions of martyrdom and jihad, most famously the, the phenomena of the suicide bomber, the most active in a sense, rather than these passive and quietist and sabr kind of forbearance type of, of jihad. Um, but we also have at the same time, but perhaps in many ways rather less noticed, at least by non-Muslim commentators and journalists, definitions of martyrdom didn't change. The, the passive and quietist definitions of martyrdom also continue to be upheld by scholars as well. So in short, can you tell us how and, and why uh, martyrdom was reinterpreted in the, the modern era? Um, yes, um, again, we'd have to cover a broad swath of time. So I'm gonna to try to summarize some of the key changes um, as briefly as I can. Now, as you point out, the usual definitions of martyrdom, both in the military and non-military sense, in a continue, of course, into the modern and contemporary periods. Uh, but one period that was critical in kind of creating uh, cataclysmic changes in the Muslim majority world has to be the period of European colonial occupation that started in a broad swath of the Muslim majority world uh, in the 18th century. During this period, the notion of defensive military jihad begins to make a comeback. And certain military uprisings occurred in order to drive away the colonial occupiers and to regain control of their own lands. And so we can think, for example, of the Mahdi revolt in the Sudan in 1882 and others as well. But the most dramatic change occurred uh, with the rise of the notion of a political martyr. And then later, um, the rise of the grisly phenomenon of the suicide bomber as a martyr that happened more in the 1990s. So again, with early, as with earlier views, um, we have to keep in mind that these later perspectives are conditioned by the socio-historical circumstances in which they were and are being shaped. Now, as the European colonizers began to leave in the early 20th century, the military jihad began to be reconfigured in certain circles as a means of bringing about socio-political reform in Muslim majority societies through the removal, removal by violent or other means of indigenous authoritarian secular governments who were seen as doing the bidding of Western imperialists. Now this is a new dimension to jihad not encountered in the pre-modern period. Legitimate political rebellion that is with just cause was termed bari in Arabic, which means rebellion, by the classical and medieval jurists. These rebels had certain rights that had to be protected by the ruler and the jurists, including the right to a fair hearing of their grievances and to be granted protection of their lives and property during the adjudication process. Unlike contemporary times, armed uprising against a well-entrenched Muslim government, however tyrannical it might be perceived to be, was not justified under the rubric of jihad in the pre-modern period. And so this development alone 
marks a radical departure from pre-modern juridical and political thought. With the rise of political Islam or Islamism, these perceptions change dramatically. Now, ideologues like Abul Ala Maududi from the Indian subcontinent, and later Sayyid Qutb from Egypt, who was greatly influenced by Maududi's ideas, began to name their political revolutionary movements jihad to be carried out not only against foreign non-Muslim enemies, but also against Muslims themselves who did not see eye to eye with them. In the post-colonial world, with the memory of the humiliation suffered under European colonial rule still fresh, Jihad from Maududi becomes what he describes as, and now this is a direct quote from his writings, an invitation to join a movement of social revolution. This social revolution, he says, has to be launched against the forces of injustice and evil set in motion not only by hostile non-Muslims, but also by imperfect Muslims who are not true Muslims. Muslims of the right thinking kind, like himself, of course, constitute a revolutionary party whose objective is to set up an Islamic system of government, ultimately in the whole world. Sayyid Qutb similarly declared that the fundamental purpose of jihad was to establish a worldwide Islamic state and liberate humanity from, as he saw it, the worship of other humans. Needless to say, those who perished while carrying out jihad in this sense were martyrs of the highest order. So situation ethics grounded in political realism is carried to its extreme by those who make a case for suicide bombings, dubbed by them as martyrdom operations, which is an unprecedented phenomenon in the modern Muslim world for which we have no classical legal pronouncements. Suicide is categorically forbidden in the Quran, Hadith, and Islamic law, but some proponents of suicide bombings, like the Palestinian scholar Nawaf At-Takruri, justify suicide bombings as a practical, tactical strategy available to the Palestinians in order to inflict casualties on the far superior Israeli army, which outguns them and outstrips them in military might. In such dire and extreme circumstances, suicide bombing for them becomes a legitimate tool of self-defense and an act of self-sacrifice that qualifies as genuine martyrdom. Another militant ideologue who has proved to be quite influential in these circles is Abu Muhammad Asim al-Maqdisi of Jordanian-Palestinian background. And al-Maqdisi has legitimized suicide bombings as a proper manifestation of military jihad in specific circumstances. He has expressed his conviction that the pronouncement of suicide is reserved only for those who kill themselves in disobedience to God for personal reasons, and not for, and now I'm quoting him, not for those youths in Palestine who blow themselves up to inflict harm on Israelis, and upon those Muslims whom he calls apostates, who have allied themselves with Americans and other unbelievers on Muslim lands, end of quote. The following three caveats apply according to al-Maqdisi. First, 
The latest technological methods and explosive devices should be used so as to minimize the number of victims on the Muslim side. Second, the operations should focus on military targets and avoid the intentional targeting of children. And third, the motive for resorting to such actions should be for the purpose of establishing a true and general public benefit and to avert a definite harm, not a probable one. If one can kill the enemy without resorting to suicide bombings, then Al-Makhdisi says, quoting, sacrificing the self is not permitted because it is not a necessity and because it can be accomplished by other means. When a suicide bomber meets the three criteria that Al-Makhdisi lays out, then his jihad is to be regarded as a valid act of worship and his death is to be deemed a genuine and praiseworthy act of self-sacrifice for the greater good. Other cyber sheikhs, as I tend to call them, adopt very similar positions on the permissibility of suicide bombings when such acts give Muslims under military occupation a fighting chance against a formidable enemy. Among more serious scholars, the Egyptian-born cleric who moved later to Qatar, Yusuf al-Qaradawi, adopted a similar line of reasoning, but in the Palestinian context only, a, posi a position that actually generated uh, quite a bit of negative publicity in the Western media at the time. And this was in 2002, in the aftermath of the September 11 attacks. Al-Qaradawi declared martyrdom operations to be the new defensive weapon of the weak against aggressive tyrannical forces, as he described them, and therefore justified when Palestinians resort to them in order to intimidate and harm the vastly superior Israeli military forces and thus legitimately defending themselves. However, he condemned the terror attacks of September 11 as unjustified because they were not carried out in self-defense and they resulted in the deaths of many genuine civilians, including many Muslims. So it's very interesting that, you know, this new kind of situational ethics where the rules aren't exactly black and white, but depend on the circumstances in which, uh, you know, Muslims are find themselves to be in, it's this kind of situational ethics that determine the legitimacy of a, of a military jihad and, and therefore the legitimacy of the martyrdom that is supposedly earned by resorting to suicide bombing. Recent decades, as you've written about too, have also seen Muslim scholars, and indeed cyber sheikhs, as you've called them, it's a very great phrase, uh, pushing back against these more militant and these newer versions of, or models, definitions of martyrdom. So can you tell us about a couple of the most influential of such recent anti-militant figures? Okay, so um, on the issue of so-called martyrdom operations, uh, I want to mention the names of mainstream scholars like Nasiruddin al-Albani from Syria, and also Muhammad ibn Saleh and Uthaymen from Saudi Arabia, two well-known scholars and jurists who have condemned them as simply a form of suicide and therefore categorically forbidden in Islamic law. Um, and another very important uh, cleric and scholar who's written on this topic and delivered a very detailed and blistering condemnation of suicide bombing uh, 
uh, is the Pakistani cleric Muhammad Tahir al-Qadri, who issued a detailed legal tract in 2010 against the phenomenon of suicide bombing. So al-Qadri particularly takes aim at the argument of some contemporary militants that suicide bombings are justified as long as they're carried out with good intention and pious motive. He marshals an impressive array of arguments based on the Quran and Hadith to undermine this and other militant positions. And Qadri states, and I'm now quoting from his tract that was uh, released in 2010, terrorism, he says, in its very essence, is an act that symbolizes infidelity and rejection of what Islam stands for. When the forbidden element of suicide is added to it, its severity and gravity become even greater. And this has been the unanimous position, he says, of scholars throughout the past 1400 years or more of Islamic history. Another scholar worthy of mention is Ali Juma, of course, if you're an Egyptian, he would say Guma. Uh, he's the former Grand Mufti or, or Chief Juris Consult of Egypt and a professor of Islamic jurisprudence at Al-Azhar University in Cairo. Juma wrote a book called Al-Jihad Fil Islam uh, in Arabic, which translates into simply Al-Jihad in Islam in 2005 in the aftermath of September 11. It was meant to be a rebuttal to typical militant conceptualizations of the military jihad. Al-Juma makes the case that the combative jihad was necessary for self-defense in a pre-modern war-ridden world. And against such a historical backdrop, the Quran and the Sunnah permitted fighting out of necessity and at the same time imposed humane and ethical restrictions on waging war. In the modern world, Juma says, governed at least theoretically by international treaties and contracts, Quran 861, chapter eight, verse 61, which states that if the enemy inclines to peace, Muslims should also incline to it, is the more appropriate proof text to be invoked and mandating peaceful relationships among nations and peoples. And so there's a similar trend of thinking and interpretation that had already started in the first quarter of the 20th century that emphasizes the peaceful aspects of jihad, particularly as inherent in the concept of sabr or patient forbearance. Among the proponents of this view are Jaudat Said from Syria, Wahiduddin Khan from India, both of whom, by the way, recently passed away, and Fathullah Gulen from Turkey, who's still alive, they all depict violence as an aberration and or an idea whose time is past. Violence, they say, may be regarded as a last resort measure against intractable evil, and thus would rarely have to occur. And all three authors stress that in the modern world, Patient, nonviolent resistance to oppression and injustice is more effective and appropriate for Muslims today. This pacifist or near pacifist strain is generally a modern development within Islamic thought and tradition and is grounded in a renewed emphasis on the Quranic description of sabr as the most important and enduring dimension of a holistic jihad a view, as we now know, was also prevalent in pietist circles in the pre-modern period and was the earliest manifestation of jihad at the very beginning of Islam. In that sense, we have now 
come full circle. And over the space of a mere 15 minutes, you've managed to give us uh, uh, a really broad, but no less precise and, and nuanced picture of the changing, competing, and in many ways, deeply contradictory uh, definitions of martyrdom, and indeed the changing uh, position towards jihad and, and suicide by a minority of, I think, what you very helpfully termed cyber sheikhs. Professor Asma Fasaruddin, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's chamber. Thank you, Niall. This was a wonderful opportunity to talk to you and, and to get some of my ideas across to a broader audience. So I do appreciate this opportunity. Thank you so much. Da 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 da